You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. What up, Mill Creek? Um, so before I start reading, I would like to say Jonathan Drindle, our pastoral resident here, has done an amazing job this summer, summer and he's going to finish it up. And then Jeremy will return um, in a couple weeks after that. Uh, Pastor Jeremy, sorry. And uh, yeah, let's continue reading. I'm going to be reading through Genesis 36, um, 6 through 8, and then 37, verse 1. So, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of, the, of his household his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau Esau settled in the hill countryside of Seir. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Pray with me now. Lord, I pray um, as Pastor Jonathan comes up here and preaches your word that you speak to him and you help us learn something new maybe we never noticed before. And I um, bless everyone here as we learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Mill Creek. So great to be here with you this morning. And it's great to be here in Kansas City. You know, it's been just over three years since Dora and I moved out to the Kansas City area. And we have to say, we love it here. We fell in love with the city and the neighboring towns and everything it has to offer. But if there's one thing I noticed right off the bat when we moved here is, man, you people really love your sports teams. Now, I'm from Chicago, so I understand loving your sports teams. The only difference there is we yell at our teams, so you guys cheer for your teams. (laughs) It's pretty much the same thing. But for me, I've been a Bears fan most of my life. And unfortunately, they haven't been good most of my life. And I'm thinking, you know, I've been away from the city for about 10 years now, so I think it's time for me finally to change up my sports allegiance. I mean, like I said, the Bears haven't been very good, and plus, I don't know what a good quarterback even looks like. And now it's finally time for me to choose my new team. So I've decided to throw my support behind the three-time Super Bowl champion, Denver Broncos. Now, I, I know, I know they've had a rough past couple few years. Settle down, Krauses. But we just got this new quarterback three times. Three times, yes. Don't want to offend anybody. Now, we got this new quarterback, Russell Wilson, and I think he's going to turn this ship around. I mean, I'm talking Super Bowl after Super Bowl, and I mean, we are going in the right direction. Uh, On top of that, on top of that, you can't help but get behind the great history of the Denver Broncos. I mean, some of the all-time greats. You got, you know, you've got Shannon Sharp, you got Travell Davis, and of course John Elway, and even Peyton Manning decided to jump on the bandwagon. How can you not get behind that history? What do, what do you guys think? Best sermon ever. Yeah. 
Now, now, okay, I, I get it. Most of you are thinking right now, please stop talking about the Broncos. And the rest of you are thinking, <laughs> the rest of you are thinking, please stop talking about football. Now, to be honest, I haven't actually thrown my support behind the Broncos. Sorry, Krauses. But I did that to illustrate a point. We hate our rivals. We hate when they do well. We hate when they prosper, especially when it comes to football. And the fact is, if you're a Chiefs fan, you know what it is to have hard years where your rival prospers. I mean, you guys won your first Super Bowl in 1970, right? And then it'd be another 50 years before you won another one. And in the 90s, when you guys were struggling, the Broncos were excelling, even winning Super Bowls. It's tough to see, and it's frustrating. And I get it. I'm a Cubs fan. Our, our favorite saying is, next year is our year. And we're right about every 104 years. But at the end of the day, it's just football. Unless you're on the team, it doesn't affect your day-to-day -day life. The team has a bad season, you move on. Maybe another bad season, you move on. Day-to-day, -day, it doesn't affect things. But what happens when our real-life enemies prosper? What happens when our real-life rivals thrive while we are struggling? You know, there's no question today in the church that times are changing. The disparities between the church and the world around us are growing. The reality is we are living in a post-Christian world. We can see it in our political system, our schools, in the legislation that's passed, in the philosophy that the world is pushing. Things are changing. And as it does so, it, it affects our jobs. It affects where our kids go to school. And it affects our day-to-day -day life. So the question we are asking this morning is how do we as Christians live in a post-Christian world? Now to answer that question this morning, we will be diving into the genealogy of Esau. And I know this isn't a very exciting passage. But I think as we dive in and we walk through this text, we will see that it is crucially important. For Israel, this genealogy will affect them for generations to come. And for us, it will perfectly reflect the situation that we are living in today. Now as we walk through this text, we will see three truths. The first two will focus in on Esau and the world, and the last one will turn the script and will focus back on the church. So if you will, please open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. We'll be going all the way through to chapter 37, verse 1. Now the first truth we'll take a look at this morning, number one, is that the world will reject God. Read with me in verses 1 to 4. It says, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboeth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basemeth bore Raul. Oholibamah bore Jesus, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now, immediately as we open up our text, there's some important words here that we haven't seen for a while in the book of Genesis. You'll notice here in verse 1 it says, These are the generations. Now, anytime we see those words in Genesis, it is signifying to us that a major shift is about to happen. 
so far from chapter 25 on, our focus has been on Isaac's two sons, with Jacob being the center focus and Esau acting as a counterpart to Jacob. But now the narrative is taking a shift, and our focus is moving to the next generation. And specifically here, we are focusing in on the sons of Esau. Now, we notice from the text that Esau has three wives who bear him children. If you've been with us through our Genesis series, you'll remember that Esau originally married two Canaanite women. And these two women made life bitter for his parents. That's because these women come from a tribe that is outside of the line of God's chosen people. They are not a blessed line. They're the people who rejected God's promises and went their own way. This would be the, the equivalent of a man from a Christian household marrying an atheist. So Esau, having known he upset his parents, made a choice to marry another woman, an Ishmaelite. And he's thinking, well, Ishmael is a child of Abraham, and therefore I can get back in my father's good gracious. But he failed to realize that Ishmael and his people also cut themselves off from God. They were also a rejected line. So Esau continued to make the same mistake. The point is, however, that even though Esau made some poor choices, he is still blessed with five children. God gives him five sons. And this blessing here we see in the text is specifically because Esau is connected to his grandfather Abraham. God promised that he would bless Abraham and he would bless people through him. So Esau is blessed. But as we move forward, we'll see that rather than to lean into these blessings and accept the blessings of the Lord, Esau is going to move further away from the people of God. Read with me in verses 6 to 8. It says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all the properties that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, there's two things I want you to notice here from the text. Number one, God is blessing Isaac's children. We learn here that both Jacob and Esau are prospering so much that the land couldn't even support the two of them together. Now, the second thing we notice here is that after they prospered, Esau left the land of Canaan and went east to the land of Seir. Now, I'm sure you're thinking that seems like a logical choice. The land couldn't support the two of them, so of course he had to move away. But something is happening here as Esau is moving away. You see, he's not just moving down the street. What he is doing is actually cutting himself off from his father and his father's family to, in order to establish his own family line. Esau is going to make his own kingdom and his own people separate from the people of Abraham. This is basically what Abraham did when he originally came to the land of Canaan. Abraham cut himself off from, the, from his father and formed his own people. The difference is when Abraham did this, he was moving towards God's promises. But Esau's doing the opposite. He's moving away from God's promises. And we've seen this be an issue before in the book of Genesis. So you remember back when Abraham and Lot first came to the land, they had the same problem. Abraham and Lot prospered. 
to the point when they couldn't stay in the same place. And, and Lot chose to move east away from the land of Canaan. From that point on, we see Lot make uh, a lot of mistakes and, a lot, and, and have a lot of misfortune. Lot would cut himself off from God, and we would see his life turning into a devastating disaster. All because he continued to cut himself off from God's promises. And we are seeing the same thing here out of Esau. Esau is willingly cutting himself off from God's people to form his own people. And this isn't the first time he's done so. This is a pattern we see in Esau's life. You see, when we were first introduced to Esau, we saw him trading away his birthright to his younger brother Jacob. Now, this is the birthright that directly connects him to his grandfather Abraham. Later, we see him marrying these three women who are clearly outside of God's design for the family of his people. And now we see him rejecting his father's people and forming his own people. See, there's a pattern here, a pattern of persisting in unbelief, a pattern of rejecting God and going his own way. And what we need to understand this morning is that both for faith and unbelief, Persistence is the true, genuine marker where you stand before God. I mean, take faith, for example. Now, the truth is, once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in that moment, at that second, you are redeemed by God, completely covered by the blood of Christ. But the true measuring marker of a genuine faith is a faith that persists, a faith that endures until the end. And what that means for us who are Christians, if you have a period of doubt or disbelief in your life and you come back to God, it has no effect on your status in heaven. If it's your faith that persists to the end, it is the true measuring marker that you belong to God. That also means that if you spend your whole life being a vile sinner, committing the worst sins that, this, that the Bible lays out in Scripture, and you come to repentance at the end of your life, you will be treated like a holy child of God because it's your faith that persists. But the same can be said of unbelief. If it's your unbelief that persists to the end of your life, you will be judged by God for all the sins you have committed. There will be no grace for you in heaven. So Esau's life is a very stern warning of what it looks like to persistently reject the God who called you. We have to persist in belief. But unfortunately, as we look around in our, in our country, we are seeing the pattern of Esau. We are seeing all around us people reject God, reject the God who blessed this country, reject the God who called us and who gave his life up for us. We are seeing people turn away from their creator and persist in unbelief. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating to see the logic that leads them away from their creator. It's frustrating to know that they are persisting in this unbelief and turning our whole country away from God. It's frustrating to know that people will be condemned for their sins. And we are seeing it all around us in our family, our friends, our loved ones. And at times we can be thinking, God, what are you thinking? How could you let this happen in our country? 
But we have to understand that just like God knew that Esau would reject him, God knew what was going to happen in our country today. God understood the world that we were going to live in. And God placed you here for a reason. You are here in these times because God called you to be here in these times. But it's still frustrating to see the world around us prosper. That brings us to our second point this morning. God will bless those who reject him. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Now, as we hop into verse 9, we notice those words again. These are the generations. Again, this is marking another major shift in the text. Now we are moving from solely Esau's sons to Esau's generation that will come from him. And what we should point out here in the text is that Basically, there are two nations coming from Esau, as we will see here in verses 10 to 14. Now, I'm not going to put you through the pain of listening to me mispronounce any more of these names. But let me explain what's going on here. You see, one of these nations we see forming is from Esau's sons Eliphaz and his concubine. And they have a son named Amalek. Now, Amalek, just like Esau cut himself off from his father's people, will also cut himself off from Esau. And they will go on to form the Amalekites. Uh, later on in the Old Testament, they'll be a major player and they'll uh, play an important role. But for now, it's just important to know that they will go on to form their own nation. Now, the second nation we note here is directly from Esau's people, the Edomites. And if you were to walk through verses 10 to 14 and to count up all the people who form Esau's nation, you will notice nine grandsons and three sons which is 12 in total. And, and that's significant because that's a pattern we see in the book of Genesis. You see, when God blesses someone, he gives them 12 children as a sign that his blessing is on them. We first saw that in Ishmael. He was blessed with 12 princes or 12 sons. And, and later we'll see that with Jacob, who will be blessed with 12 tribes. Same blessing here for Esau. God has blessed him. And he's making him into a people. But this isn't just a numerical blessing. You see, as you read on in verses 15 to 19, and you can skim through that, you'll see a long list of all the chiefs or tribal leaders that come from Esau's people. What that means is that these chiefs, though they are under the nation of Edom, they are going out to populate cities and territories, which means that Esau's people are expanding. Which brings up another important point. You see, when Esau moved into the land of Seir, he was not moving into an un, uh, uninhabited uh, territory. You see, Seir was populated by ancient and established peoples. Which meant that Esau, when he went into the land, actually had to conquer the land. And this didn't even really take him a long time. You see, when Jacob went to the land of Haran, sometime after Esau began his conquest. And by the time that Jacob had come back, Esau was fully able to move into the land, or in other words, to take the whole thing over. And you can see in verses 10 to 30, all the peoples that Esau either conquered or assimilated into Esau's people through marriage. So what that means is that God's blessing on Esau's life is abundant. 
God has poured out into this people and formed them into a nation. And once again, that's because of his connection to Abraham. When God blessed Abraham, he said that peoples and nations would come through you. He said that people would be blessed through you. And so we see that blessing playing out right here deliberately in the life of Esau. But that doesn't make this list any easier to read. You see, the reality is we pour through this. We think of this text as being something that we skip over in our Bible reading plan. And for the nation of, of Israel, this is just listening to your enemies prosper. And this is even worse because we also have to remember that while uh, Esau was prospering, Israel was getting ready to struggle for centuries. Notice what it says here in verse 31. It says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And then it'll continue to list off all those kings. You see, this list is a reminder to the Israelites that, well, uh, Esau was growing into a nation. They were getting ready to go into slavery. You see, the time was coming when Israel was going to travel to Egypt. And, and there in Egypt, God would bless them and their peoples would multiply. But because of that blessing, Pharaoh would hate them. The Egyptians would hate them so much that they would put harsh burdens upon them and they would turn them into slaves. And when that didn't work, Pharaoh would pass an edict that all the male sons born to Israel would be executed by being thrown in the Nile. You see, Israel was getting ready to struggle. While Esau was going off and forming his nation, while Esau was experiencing these blessings, Israel would struggle for generations. And on top of that, when God would finally call Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, God would march them through the land of Edom, and he would tell them, do not harm or take a single thing from this nation, because God's blessing was on them. As they walked through that nation, they would see their prosperity. They would see all the names here in this list, knowing that they couldn't harm them or take anything from them. They would see them, and they would know that they were prospering. You see, it's frustrating to know that our enemies are growing while we are struggling. Especially when that prosperity seems to be uh, intimately linked with the struggle that we are facing. And I know we are feeling that tension today in the church. As more and more people cut themselves off from God, we are seeing a rising and rejection of biblical morality. We are seeing people redefine what marriage looks like and sexuality and gender and even uh, the sanctity of life is being thrown out the window. It's hard to live in a time when we're seeing this play out right before our lives and knowing we don't have the numbers to do anything about it. The world around us is prospering, but we are struggling. Now, the reality is, according to a recent survey done by pre, uh, Pew Research, is that right now in this country, the fastest growing religion is no religion at all. See, people aren't even turning to other gods. They're not even turning to other truths. They're turning to nothing. But the truth is, we should expect this to happen. 
The truth is that God has already said this would happen in his word. And the truth is God has already said that he would bless them. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45. He says, have you heard that it was said, you shall love your enemies and hate your neighbors. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like, like the uh, sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise in the evil and to do good and send rains on the just and the unjust. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that God blesses sinners. God's mercy rains down on those who rejected him. God's blessing is on the people of this country who are turning against them. God is blessing the sinners around us. While it may not always feel right to us, while it may be frustrating, God has mercy on them because he loves them. God cares for them, and he desires that even if one would come to repentance, his mercy will remain on this nation. God will continue to bless the people who have turned against him. And that's just the facts we see in Scripture. But that brings us back to our question this morning. How are we as Christians to live in a post-Christian age? That brings us to our third point this morning. Remember that God's people hold the promise. Look at me in, with me at chapter 37, verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. Now, as we round out our text here, we see one last focus on Jacob. Notice what it says again in verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 2. We see those words, these are the generations. Marking again that we're going to make another shift. The text is telling us that the focus is going to move from Jacob onto his children. And through the rest of Genesis, we will see God work out these messy and divided people and turn these sinners into a holy nation. But for now, we have one last important detail for the life of Jacob. You see, like Jacob's father and his father's father before him, Jacob is a sojourner in the land of Canaan. When God called Abraham to journey to this land, he gave him a promise that God would bless him and make him into a great nation, that all peoples would be blessed through him, and that God would multiply his offspring as many as the stars in heaven, as many as the sands on the seashore. And those promises that God gave Abraham are intimately connected to this land of Jacob's sojourning, because God promised that one day those peoples that nation would inherit this land. And now that blessing has moved on to Jacob. You see, while Esau sought the immediate and temporary blessings, Jacob sought after the ones that were lasting, the ones that would take patience and perseverance, the ones that would take all of his lifetime and even longer, and the ones that would ultimately be greater. You see, that is because God gave Jacob another promise. Back in chapter 5, when we were first introduced to Jacob and Esau, God promised that one day the younger would rule over the greater. In other words, that Jacob would one day be greater than Esau. And this promise was that though Esau's descendants were prospering now here in chapter 36, and though this list is frustrating, 
It was for Israel to see Esau's prosperity and know that one day they would be greater. One day they would have the power to rule over this nation. One day God would bless them so much that they would inherit the earth. And Jacob believed God. Jacob clung to those blessings so much he committed himself to being a sojourner in the land of his father. You see, for Jacob, these promises were worth hanging on to. For Jacob, these promises were worth hoping in. And for Jacob, these promises were worth persisting, even in the face of struggle. Because at the end of the day, Jacob understood that he would never physically inherit the earth in his lifetime. Because God had already said it. You remember what God told uh, to Abraham back in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. He said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation. And afterwards, they will come out with great possession. You see, the thing is, Jacob understood that he was going to die as a sojourner and an exile. He understood that he would never taste of the goodness of the earth. He knew that he would never see this great nation being formed. But he still believed God. Because for Jacob, his hope was not in this world. For Jacob, his hope was not in the immediate and temporary blessings. His hope was in the eternal blessings. The one that reigned forever. His hope was in the kingdom of heaven. Though he may not have been able to understood the complexity of what God was doing in the future, he understood in some way that he would reign in eternity with Jesus. And it should have been no surprise to Jacob that while he struggled, Esau prospered because God promised it. It should have been no surprise that his people were going to Egypt to suffer because God already said it would happen. But it should be no surprise what is happening today in our country to us. Because God has promised it. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. to He says, but understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You see, church, what is happening in our country today is not a sign that God's sovereignty has failed. It's not a sign that God is not in control. It is a sign that God is doing exactly what he said he was doing. God promised these times were coming, but he also promised that one day Jesus was coming and his judgment is coming imminently. And one day the peoples of this country will be judged. And that doesn't mean that we turn the people around us over to destruction. That doesn't mean that we abandon them and allow them to destroy themselves. It means we continue to call them to holiness and continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it also means that our hope cannot be in taking back this nation. 
our hope has to be in Jesus. Our hope has to be in the kingdom that is coming with the turn of Jesus Christ. You see, because Jesus said he is coming back, and he's coming to bring you to eternity. You see, what we see when Jesus originally came to this earth is he did not commit himself to the authority and the thrones of this world. He committed himself to suffer. Jesus took on human form. He came in the flesh not to rule over peoples, but to be the lowest of the low. He came here to be rejected by those who he came to save. He came here to be thrown on trial, beaten, flogged. He came here to die. But he also came to conquer death. Jesus came to rise from the dead and to rule over these powers of the earth, not on earthly thrones, but in eternity. And because of his resurrection, he now sits on the throne that is above every throne. He now rules over all things, and he is coming back for you. Jesus is our hope. You see, we shouldn't be frustrated when our enemies prosper. We shouldn't be uh, frustrated when our rivals rise to prominent places. We should understand that this is the only hope that they will ever have. In other words, let the Broncos have John Elway because we got Patrick Mahomes. But more importantly, let the world have their temporary blessings because we have Jesus and his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your grace that you poured out your life for us. God, this, though this world triumphs and prospers, though they seek after immediate blessings, we know that one day all of this will come to an end. We know that you will reign on high and you will come to judge the just from the unjust. And for those of us who are found in Jesus, we will one day rule in eternity. God, we hope in the goodness of your son that he is coming back and his return is imminent. Let our, let our hope be in him. We praise you, Lord Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.